The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Michael Reeves says that the Trinity is the governing center of all Christian belief, the truth that shapes and beautifies all others. Now, lest you start to write that quote down, let me uh, just reassure you, I'm going to be using a lot of quotes today, and a lot of them will be long, okay? So don't try to write them down. Feel free to take pictures of them, or if you want to write your email down, I can even share this PowerPoint with you. Um, And now you might be thinking, wow, this guy is using a lot of quotes. Does he have any original thoughts? I don't. No, I don't. There is nothing new under the sun. I'm only here to tell you what men much smarter than me have told me, okay? So I I, I would say I'm like the 50th percentile as far as theological uh, intellectual ability. There's a lot of people a lot dumber than me, and there's a lot of people a lot smarter than me. I tried to go and find them and bring them to you. So that's kind of what we're doing in the next few moments. The Trinity shapes and beautifies everything else that we believe. So that is what I want to do with our time. I want to take God's word and I want to show you how a right understanding of the Trinity shapes and beautifies our understanding specifically of the atonement. If we get the Trinity, we better get what happened at the cross. Not you better, but like we better understand it, right? Like like we, we will understand it better as a result of understanding the Trinity. Specifically, we are going to look at the question, who did Jesus die for? Or if you are a grammar Nazi, for whom did Jesus die? No doubt in a room this size, many, if not most of you, were taught that Jesus died for everybody, everywhere. After all, God so loved the world, right, that he sent his only son. So it would only make sense that he sends his son to die for who? For the world. Well, I believe that our Trinitarian theology ought to drive us to the conclusion that Christ's work on the cross, the blood that he shed, was specifically for not all people everywhere, but for the elect. The work that he did in redeeming sinners was particularly and exclusively for the very same people that God elected to salvation in eternity past, okay? This doctrine is called particular redemption or definite atonement or limited atonement. There are many different names for it. Here's a very simple definition of limited atonement or particular redemption. Christ's death was limited or particular in its intent. Christ did die for all of God's elect, to put it positively. To put it negatively, Christ did not die for everyone. Christ's death was limited, not in its power, but it was limited in its intent, what it was attempting to accomplish. And listen, Bible-believing, God-fearing Christians differ on this issue. So I'm not saying that you have to agree with me in order to be a Christian. However, I do want to make one thing very clear, and that is that every single Christian limits the atonement in some way. Listen to this. Every single Christian limits the atonement in some way. Calvinists limit the atonement, and when I say Calvinist, I mean someone who believes in particular redemption, someone who holds to the five points of Calvinism, the the, uh, fourth point, 
the third point, of that being limited atonement um, or particular redemption, Calvinists limit the atonement, as I've just said, in what Jesus was trying to accomplish. What exactly did he set out to do on the, cra- on the cross? They limit the intent of the atonement to the elect. Now, you might think, well, Arminians or those who hold to a universal or general atonement don't limit the atonement, right? Because it's unlimited. Well, I would say that Arminians limit the atonement of some of its power. Because if we say that Jesus was attempting to pay for all of the sins of everyone everywhere, then we must say that everyone everywhere is going to end up in heaven. After all, their sins have been paid for by Jesus. But... Arminians do not believe that some men are, that Ar- Arminians do believe that some men are in hell and they do not believe that every single person will be saved or will go to heaven. So in their position, we must say that Jesus was attempting to die for all and not all are saved. Therefore, the cross of Christ is limited in some of its power. It did not do the thing that it set out to do. If he was trying to die for everyone and there is one single soul in hell, brothers and sisters, he did not do what he set out to do. The mission was not accomplished. The Christian rapper Shai Lin puts it this way. If saving everybody was why Christ came to his, into history, with so many in hell, we would have to say he failed miserably. Personally, I am uncomfortable limiting the blood of Jesus of its power. So I would rather say it is limited in its scope or intent. And most importantly, it doesn't matter what I'm comfortable with. It matters what the scripture teaches. And scripture teaches us, I think, that the cross of Jesus Christ was particular and definite in its intent. Jesus always does what he sets out to do. He never comes up half a yard short. We must say that if it was specific and particular and definite in what it was trying to do, then it was specific and particular and definite in what it did. Does that make sense? If it was specific in what it wanted to do, then it was specific in what it did, because Jesus always does what he wants to do. So where do we see this in Scripture? Well, we see this everywhere in Scripture. I'm going to give you three of my favorite places. Completely subjective, I think three of the clearest places that we see particular redemption in Scripture. First of all, Exodus 12, 13. The blood shall be a sign for you. Some translations literally say the blood will be a distinguishing mark over you. The blood, and we all know the story, right? The Passover, the Israelites leaving Egypt, the 10th plague, The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Okay, so question. What makes the difference, according to this verse, between those who experience the benefits of being God's children and those who don't? The blood being applied to their lives, right? The difference maker is the the blood. What about Acts 20, 28? Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Question, who did Jesus obtain? The church. How did he obtain her? With his, he did it with his blood. Exactly. Hebrews 9, 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What does the blood of Christ do? 
It purifies our conscience. Christ's blood, brothers and sisters, did these things. It did not make these things a possibility to us. It did not potentially do these things. It did not throw these things out there and then wait for our response in order to make these things true of us. It did them. It distinguished a people, right? It it obtained the church, and then it purified the conscience of that church from dead works to serve the living God. He actually appeased the wrath of God on behalf of actual individuals, not potentially. So those are a few of the places where we see Scripture talking about Christ's work in this definite, mission-accomplished sort of way. But I think that without any of these verses... Without any of these proof texts, as it were, we can get to the same place theologically. In fact, I would go so far as to say that individual texts are not the strongest argument for particular redemption. The strongest case for particular redemption is understanding all of redemption in light of the Trinity allowing our theological lens to be colored by the eternal, unchanging Godhead. In other words, the clearer our picture of the Trinity, the clearer our picture of what took place on the cross. The more fully we understand God as he exists in tri-unity, the more fully we will understand our own redemption. So I have two points and one practical word of application, which will be my third point. My points are from his fullness, point number one, from his fullness, point number two, we have received grace upon grace, and point number three, walk in that grace, walk in grace. Point number one, from his fullness. Spent a lot of time in John so far today. And I venture to say Caleb will mention something from the book of John because you can't really talk about the Trinity without talking about something that the Apostle John said. John 1.16 says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. I would like to take the next few moments to reflect on and to bask in and to cherish God in all of his glorious fullness. Now, you might say, Charlie, I don't mind doing that with you. I just don't know what that means. What does it mean that God is full? In what sense is God full? You're like, I'm full and you're boring me right now from lunch after lunch. But in what sense is God full? What does it mean that God exists in fullness? Well, I think that we get a little clue in context. And the most immediate clue that we get in context is in John chapter 1, verse 1, a verse that we've already spent some time looking at today, but it bears repeating. John 1, 1 and 2 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. John is telling us right off the bat about the eternal unity which has always existed in the Godhead. And there is a sense in which 
I think John, throughout his whole gospel, is further clarifying. He is further zooming in. He is further defining God in all of God's fullness. And this reaches its crescendo in another text that we've already seen in Christ's high priestly prayer of John chapter 17. So when we consider God's fullness, I think we have to consider John 17, 5, where Jesus speaks of a glory that he had with the Father before the world ever was. Jesus shared in glory with the Father before the world existed. Or John 17, 22 and 23. The glory that you gave me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as and love them even as you have loved me. And then in verse uh, 24 of John 17, we see that God has given the Son a glory precisely because of the love relationship that existed between them before the foundation of the world. But not only in John, I think the Apostle Paul calls us to consider the glorious fullness of the Godhead when in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Paul says, There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom, and, and from whom, I'm sorry, and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. All things that are and the very reason that they are is a direct result of the loving relationship between the Father and the Son. All things are from the Father through the Son. And this is why Paul ends Romans 11 by saying, for from him and through him and to him are all things. It is from God and his fullness that all things exist. So if I take John 1, 1 and 2, and then I take John 17, and then I take Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians 8, and I take Paul in Romans 11, here's the best definition that I can come up with for defining God's fullness. And defining God's fullness is a little bit like defining the Trinity, right? There's never going to be a perfect definition. Here's what I think God's fullness is. God's fullness is his eternal existence in a state of triune, harmonious, divine satisfying love. It is God's eternal existence in a state of triune, harmonious, divine, satisfying love. And I actually had the whole discussion about the ontological and the economic trinity in my talk, and I took it out because I didn't want to go there, but I'm so thankful that our brother Paul went there. Because all I'm describing to you right now is the ontological trinity as it existed before time began. And when we say ontological trinity and economic trinity, let me clarify. We're not talking about two separate trinities. This is two separate ways of talking about the trinity so that we can make sense of the biblical data. Right? This is systematic theology. We are trying to take biblical data and make sense of it. And the best way that we know how to do that is to talk about the Trinity in two t different types of ways, in an ontological sense and in an economic sense. Okay, So right now what I'm doing is describing, in a sense, the ontological Trinity. In other words, God's fullness refers to his complete satisfaction and love within himself. God's joy in the Trinity, completely and utterly independent from his creation. This is something that theologians have historically called God's aseity. God's aseity is this. God is sufficient and satisfying in himself apart from his creation. He does not derive his being, 
his glory or his beauty from anything or anyone. God is sufficient and satisfying in himself apart from creation. Robert Shaw puts it beautifully when he says this. God is self-existent and independent. He has all life and glory and blessedness in and of himself. His existence is underived, for his name is I am that I am. His glory and blessedness are likewise underived. His glory results from, or rather consists in, the absolute perfection of his own nature. And his blessedness is all summed up in the possession and enjoyment of his own infinite excellencies. As the Apostle Paul says in Acts 17, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Everything came from him. Do you understand the, the significance of John 1? Sometimes I think we read the, the wordage of John 1 and we say, without him, uh, nothing was made that is made. That seems like a weird way to say it, right? But John is really trying to convince, convey to us that the incarnate Son of God existed in the ontological trinity from eternity past and that there is nothing that is made. There's nothing that you see. There's nothing that is that did not come from him. Right? He gives to all life and breath. The Son is eternal, begotten yet uncreated. Psalm 92, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From eternity past, the Trinity has enjoyed a perfectly harmonious, unified, loving relationship within itself. He didn't create out of necessity. He didn't create because his hand was forced. He didn't create because he was bored. He has forever in eternity past been perfectly pleased in himself. So I think that God's triune, eternal aseity is what John has in mind when he writes, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And important for our discussion about the atonement today is that within this fullness, the Trinity has always enjoyed perfect oneness of mind and oneness of desire. Think about that. The three persons of the Trinity have always shared one perfect will. As fallen, finite human beings, this is hard for us to conceive. Right, Because when we think about people thinking along the same wavelength, we have a very limited scope of what that looks like. Right, It's like if I say to Dylan, Dylan, think of a number between 1 and 10. 1, 2, 3, go. And we both say the number at the same time. Now, maybe Dylan and I are such good friends and we've known each other for so long that I just know when that happens, I know what he's thinking, he knows what I'm thinking, and we're going to say the same number. Or you know when a couple has just started dating and they're so in love and they're so infatuated with one another that in that annoying way they're finishing each other's sentences, right? Like they know what's coming next. You know, it's crazy we finish each other's sandwiches. That's what I was going to say. I never met someone who thinks so much like me. Jinx, jinx again. Our mental synchronization can have but one explanation, right? So they, they, they think alike. And, and, and you, look at, you look at them and, you, and you're like, wow, I think so much like that person. Or when you've been married to someone for a long time and you say, I don't know, what do you feel like ordering? You feel like Greek or pizza or Chinese. You know what they're going to say, right? When you've been married to them for long enough, you know, generally speaking, what they want, what makes them tick, what they would prefer. That's not like the Trinity, 
All three of those things that I just gave you, that's not like the Trinity. We are completely finite in our understanding of how the Trinity has eternally existed with oneness of mind. Perfect oneness of mind, brothers and sisters. The Trinity has never landed on a decision, right? You guys, we go, well, good with that? Okay, let's go with that. The Trinity has never landed on a decision. There's never been a moment in time when they decided to do something. Everything that God has ever done has always been known and settled from eternity past in the fullness of the Godhead. So even when we think about the covenant of redemption, and I do believe that there is a covenant of redemption that has existed for all of eternity. Hebrews speaks about the blood of the eternal covenant. Even when we think about the covenant of redemption, we shouldn't think about the Trinity sitting down to dinner with a contract, striking a deal in the same way that humans do, right? My tendency is to think of the Trinity. I love football as the, right, the, the head coach and the offensive coordinator and the defensive coordinator, and they have this big cosmic whiteboard with all the names of all the people, and they're making these divine decisions with X's and O's and slash and erasing that, brothers and sisters, has never happened. They are not a coaching staff. They are the immutable, eternal, perfect, harmonious, united Godhead. They have always been, and they will always be. There is one will in the Godhead. And there's mystery to that, right? If anyone says they can explain that perfectly to you, they're lying. Just worship God when you hear something like that. There's, there's good mystery there. Yet, despite God's unity of mind and unity of will and unity of desire, each member of the Godhead has their own distinct role and function. And here, again, we have to confess a beautiful mystery because even though the Godhead is one and he enjoys perfect unity, when it comes to our redemption, there are three persons and each member has a distinct part to play, which is not the entirely same thing as the other member. But even in the midst, and, and we're going to talk about that in our second point, what the, what the role of each member of the Trinity is. But what I want to highlight to you right now is that even in the midst of that distinction, even in the midst, midst of their different functions, because we believe in the ontological Trinity, no member is entirely independent of any other member. So when we speak of the Father electing, it is not as if Jesus and the Spirit are taking the day off. When we think of Jesus redeeming, the Spirit isn't passively standing by. And when we think of the Spirit regenerating, the Father doesn't just say, okay, let me know when you're done. No, at all times, they share a common goal. And they complement and support one another at every step in the achievement of that goal. I think we see the oneness and the threeness and the complete fullness of the Godhead beautifully on display in the baptism accounts of our Lord. Think about it. You have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all working in accord at one place and one time to begin Jesus' ministry. Listen to how one theologian puts it. The divine community unites in one accord in the redemptive mission. The Father expresses love for the Son and is well pleased with Him. The Spirit adds to the Father's vocal approval by a visual anointing divine dove, dove descent upon the Son. 
The mission of invasion redemption is initiated by the triune society of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit acting as one. The Father and the Spirit honoring the Son as the spokesperson and redemptive agent on their behalf, and the Son honoring the Father and the Spirit as their faithful servant. So, specifically, again, considering our redemption, considering the atonement, what Christ does in redemption is a direct result of the Spirit's empowering, indwelling, enabling work in Christ. So essentially we could say that he could not have done this apart from the Spirit working. So did the Spirit die for us? No, the Spirit did not die for us. The Son died for us. But the Son could not have done what he did without the Spirit enabling and empowering and working every step of the way. And what does the Spirit do? Well, according to John 6, 14, Jesus says that the Spirit glorifies him. And then Paul tells us that the Spirit makes us look more like Jesus. So without Jesus, the Spirit doesn't have any work to do because the goal of the Spirit is to magnify and glorify the Son. Their roles are different, yes, but at their core, they are unified. At their essence, the works of the Trinity are inseparable. So when we think about the Trinity, here's a helpful phrase. Their roles are distinct, distinct and inseparable simultaneously. They are distinct from one another and at the same time inseparable. In other words, though the members of the Trinity are distinct in their roles, they are never contradictory. At all times and in all ways, they work in beautiful tandem to accomplish one goal, which leads me to my second point. Because perfect unity of will and perfect unity of desire leads to perfect unity of execution of that will. They execute their will they accomplish their will perfectly in time and space in history because from eternity past, the ontological trinity has experienced perfect unity of desire. So we've looked at from his fullness, and you could really think about it like this, guys. From his fullness, ontological. We have received grace, economic. From his fullness, ontological. We have received grace, economic, or social, sometimes it's called, okay? Um, there's something uniquely satisfying about dominoes, right? If you take a domino and you take the time and the precision and you knock it down a couple times and you start it back up and you have that patience and then you touch that first domino, there's something uniquely satisfying in that if you've done everything right, they do exactly what they're supposed to do. And that's a good feeling. So I hope that what I did in the first point was basically just set up some theological dominoes. That was all my goal was, was to set up some theological dominoes, and right now, I would like to knock them down. As I said at the beginning, there's no shortage of data in the Bible that says that Jesus' death was particular. But I don't think that any individual verse is the greatest argument for particular redemption. The thing that necessitates limited atonement, the thing that necessitates particular redemption is what we have just spent the last few moments looking at, the fullness of the Godhead. The fullness of the Godhead experienced by us, his creation in redemptive history. You see, we just looked at who God is outside of us in himself. But the beauty of salvation is that in salvation, we are invited to be partakers in the Trinity, right? Not to become part of the Trinity, but to have real communion with the Trinity. This is what Peter says, doesn't he? That you have become partakers of the divine nature. 
So when we are called, when we are justified, when we are regenerated, we are participating in the unity and the glory that has eternally been in the Trinity. When we experience salvation, we are participating in the unity and the glory which has eternally existed in the fullness of the Godhead. We are recipients of grace, and that grace is from his fullness, John says. It is out of his oneness that God reaches down into history and sets in motion and accomplishes and applies his plans for his people. Michael Horton says it this way, God's very existence is covenantal. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in unceasing devotion to each other, reaching outward beyond the Godhead to create a community of creatures serving as a giant analogy of the Godhead's relationship. So, as I noted earlier, in this community-creating event called salvation, the Trinity is totally unified, unified and yet at the same time distinct. The way that the New Testament authors regularly speak about these roles in salvation is with three prepositions. From, through, and by. Salvation is from the Father. Salvation is through the Son. And salvation is by the Spirit. This is all over the New Testament. Perhaps the clearest example in all the Bible, of this from, through, by distinction, from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, we just sang about, in come praise and glorify, comes to us from Ephesians chapter 1. If you're familiar with Ephesians chapter 1, think about verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So the Father is the one initiating and ordaining our election. But salvation comes to us through the Son. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. It comes to us through the redemption that Jesus bought on the cross. It comes to us by the Spirit. Verse 13 and 14, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So, here's our question. We're asking, for whom did Jesus die? How is it, if all things are from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, that the Father would set his electing love on certain individuals and that the Spirit would work his regenerating grace in specific individuals and that Jesus the Son would offer his blood in a general or universal or potential sense? How is that possible? When we read about Jesus' death, we are not reading about something where the Trinity's fingers are crossed and they're hoping that they get the desired outcome. No, when we read of Jesus' death, we are talking about absolute surety because when we talk about the Trinity, we are talking about absolute surety. We are talking about a 100% success rate. Jonathan Gibson says this, if the triune God... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are for these ends, who can be against them? Such a perspective illuminates the intentionality of the atonement and provides some resources for answering the dilemma as to whether the extent of redemption accomplished can be wider than redemption applied. The issue turns not on whether the Trinity is at work. I think what he's saying there is nobody debates that 
Everyone knows the Trinity is at work in salvation, right? The issue turns on whether the goals and purposes of each person in the Trinity are the same. Holding a universal atonement presents various problems for Trinitarian theology. Translation, there is nothing potential about God's election. Read Romans 9. Read Ephesians 1. There is nothing potential about God's work in predestining and in foreknowing. He foreknew specific individuals. Not, he, didn't foreknew, he didn't foreknow things that they would do. Right? He didn't foreknow whether or not they would choose him. He foreknew them. There's absolutely nothing potential about the Spirit's work of regeneration in Titus 3 or the Spirit's work of giving life in John 6 or the Spirit enabling us to cry, Abba, Father, in Galatians 4. These are actual things that the Father and the Spirit set out to do. And more importantly, they're actual things that they do do. They don't just set out to do them. They do do them. Why would the work of Jesus be anything less than definite? Let's boil it down. Here's everything I've said so far. You're like, wow, this guy's not making any sense. Just look at this slide. <laughs> if A, B, and C are true, what does that tell us about the death of Christ? The Trinity has always enjoyed perfect unity. There's nothing general or potential about the Father's election. There's nothing general or potential about the Spirit's convicting and regenerating work. That's what it boils down to. Again, this guy Jonathan Gibson is gold. If you do not have the book From Heaven, He Came and Sought Her, buy that book. It is a book on particular redemption from every angle, pastoral, theological, biblical, uh, logical. Uh, from Heaven, He Came and Sought Her. This is where I'm getting a lot of my material from. He says, God's election and predestination shapes and guides his redemptive purposes in history. Thus, the elective purposes of God the Father and the redemptive purposes of God the Incarnate Son are one and the same. Christ's death is pres prescribed means to accomplish the electing purposes of the Father. If Jesus is just making salvation possible, that would, be, uh, that would mean that there is disunity within the Godhead. If he's just throwing it out there as an option, hoping people will respond positively, there would be a disunity in the Godhead. So now, in light of all of that, just listen afresh. Pretend like you're hearing these verses for the first time. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Here's, here's the important part. Why did he do that? So that he might bring us to God. What happens to people for whom Jesus suffered? They are brought to God. Consider afresh Paul's words about Christ's intention in dying in Ephesians chapter 5. We think this is all about marriage, and it is about marriage, but he says, hey, here's what your marriage should look like. Ephesians 5, 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He died for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Why did he do this? So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Understand, to deny limited atonement is to say that there will be people that Jesus loved enough to come and die in their place, and they are not going to be presented to the Trinity on that day. Jesus, you, you, if you do not believe in limited atonement, you are saying there are people who Jesus died for who will not be there on that last day. What about Romans 5, 8? But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
according to verses 9 and 10. What is true of people for whom Jesus died? Well, for one, verse 9 says that they're justified by his blood. They are saved from the wrath of God. Not maybe, actually. They were enemies, and now they are friends. They have received reconciliation as a direct result of that death. That is true of who, exactly? That's true of those for whom Jesus died. This is a beautiful, completed work, ordained and accomplished and applied by the Trinity. Throughout salvation, brothers and sisters, there's never any, any, any disconnect between intention and outcome. What the Trinity intends to do the Trinity does. Now, there are times over the course of salvation history where it takes time to develop, and due to our sin, and due to living in a fallen world, it looks as though it is thwarted, but rest assured, God is God, and there's never any disconnect between God's intention and his outcome. What God purposes for his elect, he does for his elect. So, from his fullness, we've received grace upon grace. Walk in that grace. Last point. Remember what I said at the beginning, Michael Reeves, that the Trinity shapes and beautifies all other doctrines. I think we've seen, hopefully, how the Trinity shapes our doctrine of the atonement. But brothers and sisters, I just want us to bask in how the Trinity beautifies our doctrine of the atonement. If we walk away merely knowing more about God, today will have been a small tragedy. I want to walk away finding him as all-satisfying. I want to walk away looking at Jesus as more dear and precious because of it. He is utterly delightful to us in the Trinity. We cherish his presence more as a result of it. We savor his love more because of it. We will find him more beautiful and trustworthy leaving today. Now, I'll be honest, right off the bat, the practical importance of this doctrine isn't blatantly obvious, right? It doesn't just slap us in the face. But think for a moment how this doctrine of particular redemption might encourage you. It's not uncommon for us to doubt God's love for us. You just turn around and look at your last seven days. Look at what you did in the last seven days. And then ask yourself, does God really love me? If you are doubting his love let me ask you this question in light of what we just talked about. What more are you looking for? How else, in other words, would you like him to prove it to you? Because let me explain it to you as I see it right now. If you are a Christian, Jesus died for you. Not maybe, not generally, not potentially, not on your good days only. He died for you. And he took your sins, not in part, but the whole. He took them all on himself. Every single one of them. He took them on himself. He did not leave one unpaid. A few summers ago, I spent a summer working on a crabbing boat. And we catch these crabs in these cages they call pots, and we stick a fish up in the bottom of the cage, and the crabs come in. And so what we would do is we would fish for our bait because we didn't want to spend money on bait. So we would spend a few hours uh, at the beginning fishing for our bait so that we could reload the crab pots, right? And so we would drag in this net. And as we would drag in the net, the fish would hit the side of the boat and a few of them would fall back into the water. Or my hands would get really slippery after about you know, 10, 15 minutes and I would go to grab a fish and it would 
slip right out of my hand back into the water. You know how many times I went after one of those fishes? Not once. I never, I never went after one of those fishes. You know how many times our captain did? Never once. You know why? Because in the grand scheme of things, they just didn't matter to us. We just didn't care that much. Brothers and sisters, that could not be further from the truth when it comes to our salvation. In the grand scheme of things, you matter to him. You matter to him so much so that he would send his son to die in your place. What more can he do? He didn't throw a net across the whole world and drag it and then hope for the best and whoop, lost that one. Whoop, didn't mean to lose that one. No, he swam to the bottom of the ocean and he picked you up. The most, the most precisely executed, perfectly accomplished rescue mission that has ever been all to save your soul from hell and there is nothing accidental or potential about it. He dove in after you. He dove in to get you. He planned it. He carried it out. He finished it. He will bring us home. Our good shepherd did not just lay down his life for everyone. He laid down his life for the sheep, for you. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish. What else would you like him to do? He has welcomed you into the communion of the Trinity. Be assured that God loves you and Jesus loves you. Guys, John 17, one more time, bears repeating. Jesus prayed that you would know the love of God. Jesus prayed for you. He even, he even goes so far as to specify, God, I'm not just praying for those who are in front of me right now. I'm praying for everyone who would ever believe. May they know your love intimately and personally. May they know the love that we share and that we have always shared. Last year, I was teaching at a high school, and um, I was walking through the hallway, and Rowan, my eldest son, was in pre-K, um, like nursery at that high school. And I saw him as I was walking through a window and someone was tying his shoes. Here he is, probably boogers all over his shirt, hair disheveled, doesn't know I'm watching him getting his shoes tied. And what did I do? I stood there in that window and I cried because of how much I love him. I love him so much that I can just see him and start to tear up. Like, that is my son. Oh, I love him. Brothers and sisters, do you think that God thinks that about you in Christ? Is that how you conceive of God's looking at you in Christ? He loves you like he loves his own son. You delight him in Christ. You delight your father. He is pleased with you because he is pleased with the son. We are in him. We've been united to Christ. What about assurance of salvation? How do I know if I'm saved? Saints, we don't know this primarily by looking in. We know this by looking out. We know this by looking at something outside of ourselves that happened 2,000 years ago. Listen to the words of this old hymn. It's called, She Must and Shall Go Free. And she, in this song, is referring to the church. It says this, Mercy speaks by Jesus' blood. 
hear and sing, ye sons of God. Justice satisfied indeed, Christ has full atonement made. All her debts were cast on me, and she must and shall go free. Peace of conscience, peace with God, we obtain through Jesus' blood. Jesus' blood speaks solid rest. We believe and we are blessed. Should the law against her roar, Jesus' blood still speaks with power. All her debts were cast on me. She must and shall go free. If Jesus died for you, his blood speaks with power over your life. You must go free. There is no record of wrongs against you. And brothers and sisters, the charges weren't dropped. The charges were absorbed in the second person of the Trinity. The charges weren't thrown out. They weren't swept under the rug. They were born in his body on the tree when he died in your place. And when the law roars against you, Jesus' blood speaks over you. All her debts were cast on me. You have nothing to say to her. And when the devil whispers lies, Jesus' blood cries, all her debts were cast on me. And on the last day, when you stand before God, Jesus stands up and says, all her debts were cast on me. She can go in. She can enter. And tomorrow afternoon, when your flesh tells you to obey the, the various lust and passions and pleasures that you used to obey, Jesus comes and says, no, she is mine and she must go free. You do not have to listen to that anymore. And he will keep you. He has way too much invested in you to not keep you. John 6 I will not lose one that the Father gives to me. I won't let one fish fall overboard. Augustine puts it this way. Those, therefore, are understood to be given to Christ who are ordained to eternal life. These are they who are predestinated and called according to the purpose of whom not one perishes. Of whom not one perishes. The Son... So one with the Father, one with the Spirit, from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Did you ever think you could get so excited about something called the economic trinity? <laughs> from the ontological, we experience the economic, and man, am I thankful for it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.